Father, we pray now that as we look into your words, we confess that we need you to be active in these moments by your Spirit. We thank you for your love to us in sending your Son, and we pray that as we look at what is maybe quite a familiar passage, that we would delight again in all that Jesus is and has done for us, uh, and that we would trust him, uh, I pray. So do that work in our hearts this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good, we'll do uh, open back up to, to Mark uh, 14. Oh, what have I done? Huh, anyhow, sorry. I was just thinking there'd be a picture there, but... Uh, Right, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, uh, and we're, we're remembering uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I wanted to do this morning is just to look at a, a few of the events uh, that are leading up to the cross. Uh, and as was read for us earlier, we'll be in Mark 14, uh, starting in verse 26. Uh, and maybe you think, yeah, this is really familiar, uh, and, and I, I would imagine for a lot of you it is. Um, But I hope it's a passage that we never sort of get tired of or or bored of. Um, And in some sense, it's a bit like uh, when Moses, uh, just before he he went back to Egypt to to deliver the people out, right? He's on the mountain and he sees this bush that's on fire and not being consumed. He says, oh, I'm going to go check this out. Uh, And the Lord calls to him from the bush and he says, Moses, take your shoes off or your sandals. Uh, You're on holy grounds. Uh, and there's a sense when we come to a passage like this, um, it, it's a bit like that, we think, right? How, uh, this is holy ground as we see uh, and observe and, and walk with Christ and his disciples into Gethsemane. And with that, there's a bit of a challenge because we're, we're seeking to understand and are supposed to explain something that isn't visible, right? Jesus is, is suffering, um, but but it's not because... Someone's, right, hitting him or beating him here, right, that's to come, uh, but it, it's something that is unseen, right? If, if I'm in front of you and sort of my arms mangled, you think, right, we need to help you, Michael, um, and that would be great. But if I'm in front of you with, I don't know, blood poisoning, I might not look any different than I look right now. And, and right, so we're watching Jesus in Gethsemane, and then there's this intensity of suffering that's already beginning, but it's... It's from something that's unseen, and that makes it, I think, challenging uh, for us to, and and I suppose, to push us to better understand, okay, what is going on? In this passage, we see the beginning of of the failures and the denials of Jesus' disciples. We see the beginning of his abandonment and forsakenness by his Father. but I trust and my hope is for all the, all the discomforts and sorrow of Jesus here that from it uh, we receive the exact opposite. We receive comfort and joy in him. So I'm just going to look at these two sections, um, verses 26 to 31 uh, and then 32 to 42. Uh, so let me read again uh, the first part of this, verses 26 to 31. And it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, that's his disciples uh, who are with him, you will all fall away for it is written, 
I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All the disciples said the same. So as we walk through this bit, uh, the first thing, I think this will probably be all right there, just get rid of our picture, uh, is to rest in God's promises, not yours. Did you notice Jesus, Peter, and all the disciples said what was going to happen, what they were going to do or not do. They were making promises. Look at how Jesus begins the discussion in verse 27. He says to them, you will all fall away. Jesus is is telling them what's going to happen. And and he's not talking about them uh, sort of abandoning the faith. The idea is more that, that, that they are going to stumble. And Jesus explains what he means when he quotes, this is a quote from the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus explains their falling away. What does he say then? He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, that's his disciples, will be scattered. So Jesus says, your falling away is your scattering. And I think like any human being, the disciples don't like to be told they're going to fail. One of our uh, kids did a, a music exam. And what do parents say before you go do your music exam? Don't worry, you're going to do awful. Uh, Of course not, we don't say that. Uh, But in one sense, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Guys, you're going to blow it. You're going to fall away. Peter didn't like it, and and he has no problem, as is often the case with him, in telling Jesus, you've got the wrong end of the stick. And it's fascinating, if you just fall back a couple verses down to uh, 18. Uh, so Mark 14, 18. All right, this is when Jesus is, is telling them that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And he says, as they were reclining at table and eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And what is their response here? They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? Right, they have the right response there. In humility, they, they say, Jesus, could it actually be me? But, but that's gone now, and, and Peter's back up, and he says, No way, Jesus, I'm not going to leave you, even if I have to die. And Jesus tries to sort of ground him and say, No, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times. And he says, Not a chance. Everyone else... We'll do it, right? Verse 29. You kind of wonder what the other disciples thought. It's almost as if Peter's pointing at them, right? Even though they all fall away, I won't. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, here's the thing Peter is absolutely sincere, right? He, He is absolutely genuine. He has nothing but good intentions, right? He's not trying to deceive Jesus. 
He's not lying to him and that he has every intention to, to not do what he says. He's not trying to trick him. He meant with every fiber of his being what he's saying to him. He was promising. And all the disciples promised the same at the end of verse 31. Right? You can count on us. We won't let you down. And you don't have to read too far past this. Whose word comes true? Whose promises are kept? Look at verse 50. And they, that's the disciples, all left him and fled. And they all fell away. They were all scattered. Down at verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Jesus had also mentioned his resurrection. He's done this repeatedly to the disciples, though it never seems to make sense to them. In verse 28, he says, I'm going to be raised up. And what do we read in chapter 16, uh, verses 6 and 7? The angel, uh, the, well, the man, the angel in the tomb uh, said, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And then what does he say there? You will see him just as he told you. You and I need to rest in what God says, not in what we say. We may be sincere. We may be well-intentioned. We may be pursuing or promising good and godly things. But we can't make our promises our foundation where we rest. We must rest in God's promises and not ours. And let me just mention one promise uh, that we see here in the text when Jesus is talking to his disciples. Uh, There's an important little phrase that I I more or less skipped over. Um, But did you notice what it was? Look at verse 27. So Jesus here is quoting from Zechariah. And he says to them, you will all fall away for it is written. And this is what he quotes. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, So he says, you the sheep are going to be scattered. But what else does he promise is going to happen? What else does God promise in his word through the prophet Zechariah is going to happen? He says the shepherd will be struck. Jesus is going to die. Jesus has been telling his disciples this repeatedly. He speaks of it here in these different words of being struck. But but as you look at that, who's who's striking? Who's doing the striking? Who is speaking in this passage quoted from Zechariah? God is. It is God who says, I will strike the shepherd. It is, God is promising. God is behind. God is instrumental in the death of Jesus Christ. How how do you find, how does that sound? How does that sit with you? Some people don't like that idea. 
Some people want to say, well, well, well Jesus suffers to, to sort of show that he identifies with us and loves us, but, but God's not a part of that. Well, to them we have to say, what, what does God say in his word? What does the text say? God himself says, I will strike the shepherd. So you're like, well, why in the world would God say that then? Why would he do that to Jesus? Let me just read. Um, I'm going to read a section that's before this quote from Zechariah and a section that's after it. So just before the part Jesus quotes here in Zechariah, we read this. It says, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Okay, so the thing that is behind the shepherd being struck is the sin and the uncleanness of God's people. Right, so he's talking about this fountain that's going to cleanse his people. And and where is that coming from? Well, then he's going to go on to say, I'm going to strike the shepherd. So so the issue, the reason reason this is happening is because of my sin, because of your sin because of my uncleanness, because of your uncleanness. And the solution to that is the suffering, is the sword of the Lord striking the shepherd, striking Jesus. And then just after that, the results, it says in Zechariah, after the bit Jesus quotes, it says, They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. That is God's promise. You have a a problem with sin, with uncleanness. My solution is striking the shepherd. And because of that, you can call me your God. That is his promise. And this has to be our resting place that Jesus suffers in our place. That he is struck for our sin. That through his being struck down, a fountain of cleansing is available to us. That he is our substitute and he brings us to God. There's lots of promises, lots of good intentions. But the ones we have to rest in are not ours, but God's. Maybe you've been resting in his promises for years and years. We'll rejoice again in the promises that he's made to you in his son. But then we move into the garden, into Gethsemane. So Jesus says this to them on the way. And then they move in to Gethsemane. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to think of this. To trust in Jesus' obedience, not Yours. Now things take a, a turn here. Uh, Jesus takes his disciples to this garden from other gospel accounts. We know they've been here before. Um, and we read in verse 33, he becomes, it says, greatly distressed and troubled. Right? There, there, there's, a, there's a turning um, in right, Jesus, how do you say it, his attitude, his, his emotions. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been shocked by news. 
something unexpected, something out of the blue, something awful, something sad. And, right? In this experience, maybe sometimes physical, but you're just sort of reeling. Uh, you're spinning. If you sort of, if you have a compass that's at the North Pole, it, it, it doesn't stop. It just spins around. And your mind is constantly running from one thought to another without ever stopping. It sort of has emotional and physical effects on you. Maybe it's the, the, the doctor with the results from your scan. Or the phone call that, that a loved one right, isn't with us anymore. Or, or maybe it's the realization of someone betraying you. And, and, and you're just rocked. You're stunned. You're speechless. You're... You need to sit down while your mind sort of shoots in a hundred directions at a hundred miles an hour. That is the the idea of these words here and and Jesus' experience as they're coming into the garden. He says to them, my soul, verse 34, is very sorrowful even to death. And, And if you were to have come... To this point, having read the rest of Mark's gospel, you might think, what's going on? Jesus has faced down raging storms, right? Quiet. Jesus has, has faced hordes of demons and, and, and people that are possessed by demons. And he just gives them a command and they obey. Jesus has fed thousands of people who had no food. Jesus has raised people from the dead. Jesus has confronted the religious authorities, the people in power. Jesus has turned the tables with just a few words on everyone who's trying to catch him out. Right? He's done all of this without batting an eyelid. Right? He's never sort of had a wobble. And yet we come here into the garden and he seems broken. He seems in distress and anguish. He suddenly seems very weak and frail. What's happened? Well, what does he pray in verse 36? And he tells his disciples, stay here, watch. I'm going to pray. In verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. His his fundamental request is, uh, this cup that's been placed into my hands, can it be taken out? Throughout, numerous times throughout the Old Testament, the the language of a cup, it's it's the language of God's judgment against a people. They they drink God's judgment up. And so this cup of judgment has now been placed into the hands of the Lord Jesus. And again, I don't know if anyone, maybe they're playing a joke or maybe just something went wrong, but they, they hold something up to your nose and you smell it and you just sort of think, oh, it's just foul. You're gagging because of what you're smelling. Right? It's as if Jesus gets this cup in his hand and, and as it wafts to him, it, it, it sends him reeling. Why though? Why, why would this cup do that to him? Why would it have this effect Upon him, what is this judgment? Yes, he is going to be beaten with whips, punched, thorns on his heads, crucified on a cross. But 
in one sense, thousands of people endured those things. What what is this cup? Well, it's what Jesus is going to cry out in chapter 15. When he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the sword of the Lord striking the shepherd is this cup. And we can say it this way, this cup is hell. And so Jesus asks it to be taken away, to be removed. Remove this cup from me. But but again, we may come to that and think, is it right that Jesus asked that? Should, Should he have asked this? Is this a wobble too far? I would suggest to you that, that there is no way that Jesus could be who he is and not ask this. Okay, let, let me ex- explain. Right, Jesus, right, he, he is the incarnate son of God. That, that means right, he, he has forever been the son of God. He takes human flesh to himself. He is born as a human. That's, we call that the incarnation. That's Christmas. What we remember and celebrate. Born as a man, taking humanity to ourselves, so he is true God and true man. Right, so his life has, from forever, always been one of enjoying the Father. Delighting in his Father, being the joy of his Father. There's this perpetual and unending fellowship, right, in the power of the Spirit. And his life as a man being born is one of perpetual communion with his father. You can read through it in all the different gospel accounts. Jesus is always sneaking away to be with his father. And knowing the pleasure of his father. It wasn't very long ago that Jesus was on the mountain with Peter, James and John. And what do they hear from heaven? The father saying, you're my son whom I'm pleased with. You are my beloved son. And, and as Jesus' God-forsaken experience begins, as, this, as this fellowship starts to dim, as his consciousness of being uh, the Father's delight starts to fade, right, it isn't his physical death that has him reeling here. It is the judgment of God, the, the suffering that is unseen, that is filling him with terror. And there's only one appropriate response to that. Can this be taken away? Must I drink this cup? He couldn't not pray this. He couldn't not say, I don't want to do this. But yet, he says, I do. Father, I have come to do your will. What does he say here? Not my will, your will be done. And he says in other places, I delight to do the Father's will. So in one sense, while it's absolutely right for him to say, I don't desire this. At the same time, he says, but I do. Because I've come to obey my Father. And what is the Father's will? Well, he told his disciples, the Father's will is to strike the shepherd. So Jesus will be judged, not, not for his sin, but for yours and mine. And that judgment will be hell. 
right? Because what Jesus endures is what he saves us from. Right? And in the midst of the intensity of these prayers, of this cup that's causing him to stagger, he finds his friends having a little nap. Right? He comes back to them and found them sleeping, verse 37. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't, couldn't you watch one hour? And he finds them again, and in verse 40, they don't know how to answer them. So like when, I don't know, when, when you're in the classroom and you're caught doing something you shouldn't, and it, you just don't really know what to say, and you sort of blush. And they, they don't know what to say to him. Yeah, we're sleeping again. Look at what he says to them in verse 38. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. As it maybe similar to what they were saying before. It's as if he says, look, guys, you have the right desires. You have the right intentions, but you don't have the strength to do it. You're going to fail. And we have to remember, for all our good intentions, our works will never be enough. You see this contrast here of the disciples. They can't even stay awake, such as their failure. So Jesus says, pray you don't enter into temptation. And I think there's probably a couple temptations specific to their situation here, but ones we share with them. All the way back to the end of chapter 8, the disciples have been struggling with defining greatness according to Jesus. Because that's where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And he says, right, take up your cross. Follow me. And, and the disciples aren't getting it. Jesus, that's not what greatness looks like. And so they're, they're going to be tempted again and again to define greatness as the world defines it. And they're also going to be tempted to turn away from Jesus to protect themselves. And we'll see that as they flee. And I think those are probably two of the key temptations that you and I face. Right? What makes someone great? Who defines greatness? What do we do when, when the cost of following Jesus begins to ratchet up? And here's the thing. Jesus here with his disciples and Jesus with you and me knows that we will fail him. I, I wish we wouldn't. But my guess is we could all sit around and say, here's the ways I failed him. And here's the thing. In this moment, prior to any other part of his life, he knows more clearly what your failure and my failure will cost him as he holds this cup. It's interesting, we can't say for sure, but, but I think if there was any place that Jesus would have turned back from the cross, it would have been here. Because he's face to face with our failure and face to face with that, what, what that will cost him. He's never been so acutely aware both of our sinfulness and of the cost that he will endure because of that. 
But instead of him turning, instead of him saying, you're not worth it, uh, he reminds his disciples and he reminds you and me, uh, don't trust in your obedience, trust in mine. You will fail, I won't, trust me. And here's a, e- even as Christians, you and I, can, we can so easily drift into trusting in our works. I remember when I was in uni, I had a good friend, we'd do mountain biking, where our uni was, it was probably a bit similar to the Chevin. And uh, usually Saturday mornings, we'd go for a ride. And I remember a particular Saturday that um, I hadn't prayed or read my Bible or anything. And I remember having the thought while we're out riding, oh, I'm going to wipe out because I've not done my bit this morning. Now, I may have, I, I didn't actually, but... Do you see how my thinking was, my spiritual performance is what governs how God treats me. Right? So, so it's not that I was questioning, am I trusting Jesus, am I Christian? But, but you see, even as Christians, we can, we can begin to think, well, how, how I perform is what's most important. And that's what I begin to trust in. And Jesus says to his failing disciples here in the garden, and he says to you and me, don't trust in your performance, trust in mine. Don't trust in your obedience, trust in mine. And, it, and it's interesting, just this, these, these parallel gardens, as it were. Right, way back at the beginning of God's word, there was a, a different garden, right? Eden. Adam's in the garden, and the tempter comes. I think fundamentally his, his temptation is, God doesn't really love you. He wouldn't treat you this way if he did. Take things into your own hands. So Adam and Eve, they turn and rebel against the Lord. And you remember in that account, uh, the Lord comes to the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And he, he, he's seeking Adam out. And we come here to, to another garden, uh, to another man in the garden. And, and I think the tempter likely present suggesting the same thing. If your father loves you, he wouldn't strike you. Would he strike the one he loves? And and rather than God coming, pursuing the man, we see Jesus calling out, as it were, God, where are you? And, And there isn't a reply. But look at how the passage ends. And this is where... I want us to see, yes, we must trust Jesus' obedience. Verse 41, and he came the third time, Jesus, to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The the, the cup is in his hands. The Father is turning away. The the, the stench of hell surrounds him. The failure of his friends is no comfort to him. His betrayer, who is a friend, approaches. And what does he say? Get up. Let's get going. Now, it's clear he's not saying, let's get out of here. Right? He's not saying, guys, let's let's go and hide. (laughs) Imagine... The foot, whatever, I don't know if you follow football, but pick any sport. But imagine your team is down with about 10 minutes to play. And the coach uh, has a little word with the team. And he may not use these exact words, but basically he says, all right, guys, let's get going. Right? Now, he doesn't mean let's leave the stadium, let's leave the pitch and, you know, just go, go have our lunch. 
No, he says, let's advance against the enemy. That's what he means by let's get going. And it's interesting, in other, um, not in the Bible, but in other uh, ancient documents, the same word is used um, in the context of, of military advancement. So here's the thing, Jesus face-to-face with our failure, Jesus face-to-face with the cost of our failure. Uh, no, right, that the Father's not there to comfort him, to answer him. He gets up and he says, let's advance. Let's get this done. There's work to be done. Let's get moving. And Jesus emerges from Gethsemane, not intent to abandon us, not intent to turn from the cross, but with his full resolution to go and to suffer for you and me. To say, my work is enough. And so as we see him come out of Gethsemane here, heading to the cross that we'll remember this weekend. You've heard it probably hundreds of times, but hear it again. Trust his obedience, not your own. Trust God's promises, not your own. And as we close, let me just read a couple promises. These are from John's gospel. But here are some promises based on Jesus' obedience. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you're a Christian here this morning, rest in God's promises. Trust in Jesus' obedience. And if you're not yet a Christian, Jesus this morning invites you to rest in God's promise to you and him. To trust his obedience, not your works, not your good intentions, not your best efforts. But Jesus who emerges from Gethsemane with his eyes set to the cross to say, I'm going to suffer what you deserve that you might receive the blessing of God and life with him. Let's pray together. Father, how we rejoice that in these moments as Jesus is uh, just really hours away from the cross, in these moments where the fellowship that has been all he's ever known with you uh, begins to fade. That when the failure of his disciples and the betrayal of his friends are right in front of him, he, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't give up on us because we're lame. But he emerges uh, victorious as our Savior. And so we thank you that Jesus came to do your will. And that that will was that he would go to the cross and be struck down by you, bearing the judgment we deserve, opening up a fountain, as it were, to cleanse us from our sin, so that we who trust in him can call you the living God, our Father. May we never grow tired of hearing 
those glorious truths. Guard us from trusting in ourselves, in our own promises, in our own achievements. May we rest alone in the promises that you make to us in your Son and in his obedience. Father, fill us with compassion that we would want this message to be proclaimed and received by others. That they too would know cleansing from their sin and know you as their God and Father. We pray that you would do this for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to finish singing a wonderful hymn that speaks uh, of the Lord's love for us. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.